Merry Christmas. I certainly do not want you to miss living this week, but I also know that we're all looking forward to next Sunday, uh, next weekend. I, I hope that you are planning to be a part of next Sunday evening. Um, I think that's going to be such a cool time together. Uh, that, that what TJ mentioned, five o'clock birthday party for Jesus. We're always saying that we want to make sure that our kids know what this is all about. Well, what a cool way to do that. Sometimes we say we want that, but then everything else about this season points to something different. So that's a cool moment for your kids to come, have a lot of fun. Then 6 o'clock, we're going to worship, candlelight, right, child dedications. I think we're going to be able to, to uh, celebrate with some believers in, in some other parts of the world. And it's only going to be an hour. So you know you can still get to um, your family events and, and all that you want to celebrate with. Uh, it, it, people go, Jeff, Christmas is about family. No, it ain't. Christmas is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Now, I hope you get to celebrate with your family, but what this is ultimately about is it's about Jesus. And so I, I hope that you'll join us next week. Um, today, we are in week three of a series called The End. The End. And so we, we did something kind of weird. We talked about Christmas in November. And in December, we have been talking about the end, not the end of the year, but the end of the end. I mean, like the end. That's what we've been talking about. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let you know, the week after Christmas, so it'll be New Year's Eve, I think on that day, um, I'm going to talk to you about our final home. When we think about the end, I think that's what we're going to talk about on that day, our final home. Next week is Christmas Eve. And we're all going to be together in one big room. Kids are going to be in with us. And so next week, I'm going to talk about the lake of burning sulfur. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just kidding. It's okay. Bring your friends. We're not going to talk about the lake of burning sulfur. We're going to talk about Christmas. I promise. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about Christmas next week. So it'll be safe. Uh, bring, bring your family. Bring your friends. I, I think it'll be a good time together. Here's what we need to talk about today. As a nation, we know we must always be prepared for war. Our history would tell us such. From our beginning, right, a war of independence in 1776, a war of 1812, civil war, Spanish-American war, World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, Persian Gulf War, Afghanistan, Iraq. As a nation, we know we must always be prepared for war. The Bible says there is going to be a final war, a war that will end all wars. It will be the war at the end. And I'm telling you that preparation is taking place even now all across the globe, but it actually begins above. 
So if you, can't, if you haven't been able to tell, we're not going to do Christmas today. We're going to different directions. Next week, we'll be back to the manger, but we ain't in the manger today. Here's where we start, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Look at what the scripture says. The great dragon was hurled down. It's like, who is the great dragon? Here's who he is. That ancient serpent called the devil. Oh. Or Satan, okay, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so we know when Revelation talks about the dragon, we don't, no question for us, that's who it's talking about. It's talking about Satan. It's talking about the, the devil. It's talking about the ancient serpent. And what we know about him is he is described as the prince of the power of the air. When we read about the enemy in the Bible, we get this picture that his leash is given some room to roam. There are moments that he seems to be in heaven accusing the faithful before God. There are moments that he certainly is operating on the earth. Um, he is given some realm. But there seems to be a day that's coming, and I believe when you read the context of all this, it is in the middle of what we have been learning about called the tribulation, a seven-year period that's going to happen at the end when his leash is restricted and he will be cast to earth. Now, there is a description in Scripture of him being cast out of heaven in the beginning. I don't think that's what this is. I don't think that's what this is. It says in verse 13 of that same chapter, Revelation chapter 12, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now, a lot of what we talk about when we come together on, on these moments, I'm trusting that you're going to read it out you're going to search it out. Some of it I just kind of have to tell you, here's what I believe this is, and here's what scholars believe, but you, you, you search it. But I, I believe what this refers to, the woman represents Israel. That's what the context would tell us. The woman represents Israel through whom the male child, who would be who? Jesus was born. We're celebrating his birth. If you want to recognize what's going on in the end, then we've said you got to keep your eye on Israel. You got to keep your eye on Jerusalem because the end centers around this tiny country compared to the rest of the world. It's just like a couple of hundred miles from, from north to south, although it varies in its width. I mean, 50, 60 miles wide, it, it's just not that big of a place. But what made all the difference in the world is that God made a covenant with this people. And unlike what we are accustomed to when people make covenants, this covenant, it is eternal. God doesn't break his covenants. He doesn't break his promises. Well, Satan's desire is to destroy everything that God is about. And if God is wrapping up the plan, if God's kingdom is coming and it's, and it's through this little nation through which God is going to operate, then the enemy wants it taken out. So I want to I make sure that you understand when you're reading, for example, the book of Revelation and you're reading about these figures that seem to be connected to the enemy, how, how does that work? Let me show you real quick. Revelation chapter 16, verse 13. 
John says, then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. Now, isn't that just, that's funny that he picked frogs. I don't know why he picked frogs. One day when we get to heaven, it's like, John, why'd you pick frogs? Maybe by then we're going to know. But remember, he's trying to describe stuff that he just doesn't even have words to know how to do that. And so he's putting these images together. He says, they came out of the mouth, you ready, of the dragon. Now, we already know who that is. That's who? That's Satan. That's the devil. Out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And those three figures you will see throughout this story of the end time. Now, we believe as God's kids in in what we call a holy trinity, don't we? We believe in God who is one God, and yet he is three. He is Father, he is Son, he is Holy Spirit. That's who we know God to be. Well, the enemy is always about counterfeiting that which God has as true. And so when you read the picture of what the enemy does, it it is the picture of a counterfeit trinity, if you will. The the picture of an unholy three, there is Satan who is the dragon, there is the beast mentioned here that we usually refer to as the Antichrist, and then there is the false prophet. He is another figure that comes on the scene. His job is to point people toward the Antichrist. Now in in the Holy Trinity, who is the one that points people toward Jesus? Holy Spirit. And so I'm saying that the enemy is just counterfeiting this picture. The Antichrist will take a political lead in the end. The false prophet will take a religious lead. He will do miracles. He will set up an image to be worshipped, which is the image of the Antichrist. I believe that's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. I think the Bible paints the picture. It's going to happen there, a counterfeit image on the temple mount where, where the temple, where the worship of God should be taking place. That's what this false prophet is going to do. Listen to their influence on the end. Check this out. Revelation 16, 14. They are, now that's the three that were just mentioned. They look like frogs, but each of these demonic, right, These demonic spirits that perform signs, so they do the miraculous, and they go out, you ready for this? To the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. You're like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds big. Oh, it's big. And what this verse just told us is that that's going to happen. The kings of the earth, they are going to assemble for a most extraordinary final war. But who's behind that? What does this say? It is the, it is the enemy. It is demonic forces, right? He's committed to the destruction of Israel. And in that time period that we call the tribulation, those seven years, the unrestrained satanic persecution of Israel is going to lead the whole world to that little land. Here's what it's called, Revelation chapter 16, verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called what? Armageddon. Armageddon. Now, Even in our culture, we hear the word Armageddon often because we have developed this bad habit 
of attaching Armageddon to any kind of what we consider to be significant struggle. And so it might be the, the championship you know, game of, of you know, college football, and we're calling it Armageddon, right? It sells. It, it sounds good. It, it sounds like there's a... But I'm telling you that once you study and once you read what Armageddon will actually be like, you will not be comfortable attaching it to anything else. You will not be comfortable attaching it to a football game. You will not be, be comfortable attaching it to, to a fight. You, you just won't. When you see what it is, Har, the first part of Armageddon, Har means mountain. Megiddo means slaughter. Put it together and you have the mountain of slaughter. That's what Armageddon means. And what is, what is significant is it's actually attached to a plane. Okay, not a flying plane, but a, a flat piece of ground plane in northern Israel. It's a real place. You, you could get on a plane and fly there today and see this plane. It's real. Napoleon in 1799, stood at the edge of this piece of real estate, and this is what he said, I quote, 1799, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suited for war than this. It is the most natural battleground on the whole earth. Now, Napoleon wasn't a prophet, but he was quite prophetic in what he was saying here because he was just a man who could understand what a battleground should look like. And he said, Armageddon is such a place. When you read it, when you read Revelation, when you read Scripture about this battle, I would encourage you to make sure you see it this way. It will be centralized on this Armageddon plain, but it will not be contained to this Armageddon plain. It, uh, there will be battles fought throughout Israel, and I would say even a bit beyond. When you read uh, the prophets, Joel, Zechariah, even I, when you read the prophets, there, there are various references made to battles that are connected to this war, it's more like a campaign. Think of it that way. It's more like a war and there will be battles that will be fought. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 14 verse 20. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city. All right, now this is an image. You think about a winepress where they're stomping on grapes, you know. They, will, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Remember what I told you that once you understand what Armageddon looks like, you won't be comfortable attaching it to a football game anymore? Even if we didn't know how far 1,600 stadia is, which it's at least 180 miles. Some people will just say it's about 200 miles. Miles. 
and the blood will flow from this battle deep enough to reach the horse's bridle. I mean, we see a lot of special effects and, you know, we just do, we, we live in a day where we can see a lot of crazy stuff that we never thought could be, you know, made that we could see. But I, even in all that I've ever seen, that's just, that's just a hard picture for me to even drum up in my own mind how an actual real battle could happen and the blood would flow up to the horse's bridle. It will be the largest gathering of military in the world by at least, and I think I'm being crazy conservative, by at least 10 times anything we will have ever seen. At least 10 times. So see it as a war. Battles will be fought over this really three and a half year period on the backside of the seven years that we call the tribulation. Why would this be happening? I mean, do you ever just go, why? And if we were like really digging into this, we could take like a whole series and just talk about why. Why does this battle happen? Why does this take place? Well, it's all about God's judgment. And when you read scripture, you find God's going to finish his judgment on Israel. It's like, why is there judgment on Israel? Because they rejected him. The Messiah came, there was rejection, there is consequences to that rejection, there is judgment that comes. In other places in the Bible, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, who would, who would be Israel, it's, it's the time of trouble. It's going to be a time when God judges the nations who have persecuted Israel. Don't mess with Israel. God was really clear on that from the very beginning. Don't mess with them. And people who mess with you, he says, I will mess with them. And this will be a part of that judgment. It's also going to be a judgment just against the nations who reject God. It is such a picture of a storing up and then unleashing of the wrath of God. Come on, aren't there days that you, you if not out loud, you quietly have this kind of thinking. It just seems like... All this evil is going on around us, and God is not moved. Oh, he's moved, and you're about to see what that looks like. Let's see if we can give you a little visual. We've been trying to just add um, a little bit along the way to try to help you get a picture of this. Let's talk that time um, of tribulation. So we're talking seven years, right? In Daniel, it's that last week, the 70th week. And so what we're, what we're hoping for is that somewhere right in here, we're out of here. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, the more you study this, even if you don't actually, if you've always been the one who thought, no, nah, I think that's going to happen more here in the middle. Isn't it? The more you study it, you're like, you know, I think I'm going to go pre. I, th I think I'm going to go with that. I mean, you just do. You look at it and you're like, man, I, I hope, I hope that we're out of here. And I'm saying could be. Could be that that's the moment when, when it says that, that Jesus comes for his church and we meet him in the air, right? Whether that's at the beginning or, or whether that's at the middle, we said, look, people, people differ on this. We're going to love each other like crazy because we're all cheering 
for him to come for his church. That, that's what this is really about. Well, what we know is that before this happens, what is going to initiate this start of that seven-year period? What's going to initiate it is the Antichrist, along with a, what we're going to call today a European coalition. It's going to be this group of, of nations. They are going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. Imagine that. So the, here's where we are, right here. Okay, I'm, I'm drawing the, the, the that's where that's going to happen. The, the Antichrist is going to say, along with this European co co coalition, we will protect you, Israel. We will protect you. And Israel will be so desperate for peace that they will sign it. And the 70th seven begins. And what is described during this first, you know, period of time is just a time of peace unlike Israel has known in a long, long time. A time of unwalled villages, right? It's kind of the phrase of the, there's just no, it, it, there's, there's going to be peace. But here's what I want you to know. There is going to be a battle that takes place in this first part of the tribulation. And it is referred to as a war or a battle, if you will. I'm just going to abbreviate. Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog. Now, you're like, those are funny names. Yes, they are. And again, I'm going to challenge you to, to search it out. But basically, when we hear the names Gog and Magog, we are, we're going all the way back to Noah's line. We're going back to, to Noah's family and some names that are given us to, to us there. And as they move north... All right, what you're going to find is that when scholars look at this group of nations, apparently there's going to be about five of them who are going to go to battle against Israel. They're going to go to battle against Israel. When Gog is mentioned, it is usually in reference to the area around what we call Russia now, that territory. All right, it, it says that Persia would be involved. Well, what's Persia now? What do we call that? Iran. Right? And isn't it just weird that for forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, Russia and Iran would have absolutely nothing to do with each other until just for us, even recent history. It's like, can't you just see where all the pieces, all the pieces continued to move into place? Well, what we're told happens is this group of nations in a time of peace is going to go after Israel, but God is going to stop them. He's going to do things like earthquake, throw the armies into confusion, right? Stuff from heaven, kind of from the sky. I mean, he, it is just going to be God who goes, uh-uh, no, no, you're not. It says that it is going to take, you ready for this? Seven months to bury the dead from this battle. Seven months to bury the dead. And that it will take seven years to, to burn all the, the weapons that were involved in this battle. 
Listen to what I'm about to tell you. That's not even Armageddon. Are you hearing me? Seven months to bury the dead. And this is not what we often refer to as the final battle of Armageddon. Let's read a little bit. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. We can go to Daniel. Daniel and Revelation give us, give us some mirror pictures of this. Here's what it says. He, that's, that's the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many. That's what I just told you for one seven. In the middle of the seven, the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering at the temple. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation. You're like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds impressive, doesn't it? It is. It's a lot of syllables. Until the Lord that is decreed, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And so here's the picture we got. Antichrist appears on the scene over here. He sets up this covenant, this, this pack of peace with Israel. Click, the stopwatch starts for the, for the seven years. And during the beginning of that, he is going to strengthen his time, his, his role in the world. There will be signs and there will be wonders. If I'm reading it right, there's even going to be this moment where he appears to be shot in the head and then he will rise from the dead. I'm telling you. Some crazy stuff. He is going to take the power that he desires. And he will establish worship of himself in Jerusalem. It says it takes place right here in the middle. So a lot of people believe, a lot of people believe then that that's going to be the time when the church is taken out. Maybe, maybe. I'm hoping we're already gone. But what we know is it cranks up to a crazy degree at that point. He, he is establishing something in Jerusalem. Again, I think it's going to take place right there on the Temple Mount where there is this image. Bible says the image is going to be able to talk. I don't know what that means, but we're, I mean... I'm hoping we're seeing that from, from, an, from another location. But some way, he's going to set it up, and he will be worshipped. He will be worshipped. Verse 36, Daniel 11. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. I mean, he's, there's just no regard. I mean, he's just in the face of God, if you will, saying whatever he wants. Verse 37, he will show no regard for the God of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. The only God he has is what here is referred to as the God of fortresses. It, it is the God of his own might. And through Satan's power, through wealth, through supernatural, he begins to demand that everyone worship him. He says, you follow me, you worship me, or you die. I am God, and you will do what I say. 
Remember I've been telling you all along, halfway through, he's going to take the mask off and he's going to suddenly be clear he is associated with the one who truly, right, fills him. And he, I mean, he's going to be connected to an enemy. That's exactly what happens here. But when he does that, when he does that, many of the nations, or at least some of them, who have been following him are going to say, wait a minute, maybe we don't want to follow this guy. Maybe this is not where we want to line up. So instead, we're going to fight against him. All right, here we go. This is about to, about to get good. Daniel 11, verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. Hey, we don't want to worship this guy. We don't want to follow him. Who does he think he is? God? Mm -hmm. And so the nations come together to fight against him. And it says that there comes this king from the south. And as the Bible describes all that, I mean, we're looking at, it's, it's Africa, it's, it's Egypt. We're talking, we're talking millions, a military that comes from the south. And they are converging on this little tiny place, Israel, where at this point the Antichrist is set up, right, his little throne, and he wants to be worshipped. And then it says that at that time there also comes one from the north, a king from the north, and he's coming with, with, with his armies. But because of the satanic power that is made available, I mean, somehow the Antichrist is going to be able to push back in all this. He's going to be able to, at least for a short period of time, he's able to, to, to hold them off. But then verse 44, let's go to verse 44, Daniel chapter 11. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. See, he's got the same problem. He's got the same problem that Israel has right now. They're like a sidewalk. A sidewalk to Asia, to Europe, to Africa. Where that little tiny nation is connected, it connects all those great, huge pieces of the world. It's, it's like a sidewalk. And, and so, how do you defend yourself... When they can come from the south, and they can come from the north, and now they're coming from where? The east. How do you defend yourself? Here's what it says in, back in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. It says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way of the kings from where? The east. Isn't that cool? So a part of what people have always discussed is we've got this massive, massive army coming from the east. But the Euphrates is a, is a border. It's a, it's a boundary for, for Israel. And it's like, how are they, how they going to get across that? It's like, are they going to be building bridges? I mean, how are they going to do that? No. You know how it's going to happen? God's going to go. Whew. 
And he's going to dry it up. I mean, that ain't that big a deal. He did it before. Where did he do it before? Red Sea? Jordan? He might actually be good at this. He's just going to dry it up. He's going to dry it up. Nobody's going to need the bridge. They, They can just march across. How many? Check it out. Revelation chapter 9, verse 16. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Okay, math people. 10,000 times 10,000. 100 million times 2. 200 million troops. People are like, well, that, that, that's just too big. That, that can't happen. Not when you start to calculate the number of troops that are, that are even currently in China. You start to calculate the number of troops that are, that are other armies of the East. Oh, it, it can be done. And so as the Antichrist progresses, here they come. From the South, from the North, now from the East. The greatest war ever to be known is being set in motion. And the battleground is what little place? Israel. Now remember, who's pulling these kings from the south? Who, who's, who's speaking into their ear? The enemy. Remember that? Remember the frogs? And he said, they're going to go to the kings of the world and they're going to assemble them. Who's speaking to the kings of the, of the north? The enemy. Who's, who's speaking to the kings from the east? The enemy. And he will orchestrate and they will converge. Because what's his ultimate goal? To wipe out what? Israel. He wants to wipe out Israel. Millions from the south, millions from the north. We know 200 million from the east. How? intimidating that's going to look to everyone well almost everyone Psalm chapter 2 verse 1 why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven does what? (laughs) He laughs. Millions from the south, millions from the north, 200 millions from the east, and you know what God does? He laughs. It's like... That's all you got? So at this moment of attack, I mean, you put yourself in Israel. Here they come. Millions from the south, millions from the north, millions from the east. But oh, they forgot about one direction. Not the band. And it wasn't west. They forgot about up. (laughs) 
Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. At that moment, this is what happens. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress. Remember we read that? He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And at the moment that all the armies of the world are converging, here he comes. And he's got his own armies of heaven, the scripture says. There are two divisions of that army, by the way. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, congratulations, you have been drafted. No, for real. And on that day, I believe we are, we are with him in this battle. We, we follow him into this battle. He arrives with the saints. How did we get to be with him? Well, when he came for us, we, we rise to meet him in the air, and we are with him. And then when this battle takes place, we are with him. And then it tells us there's also a division of angels. I mean, more than you could count. And we alongside the angels, but here's the best news I got for you. When you're in the Lord's army, at least in this battle, you don't fight. Because what it just said is, he will strike them down by the word of his mouth. All he will do is speak, and it will be done. And it says that the angels call the birds. The birds of the earth converge on that battleground in order to clean up everything that's left behind. All he does is speak. How did he create the world? Speak. By the word of his mouth. You know what you and I are doing? Here's what you and I are doing. Uh, we're with him. That's what we're doing. We're, we're with him. We're with him. Remember what I told you? This is about a, a series of snapshots that we are given to be reminded. Who wins? Jesus wins. And it is for the invitation to be extended that you make sure you choose the right team. Anybody unclear on which team you really want to be on? We're with him. We're with him. Here's how it unfolds. Then I saw, verse 19, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, that's Jesus, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Wow. You need to choose the right team. But I've also come to tell you today that if you choose the right team, your mission in life will change. And I'm promising you that your mission will be much greater than getting a good parking spot at the retail store. It will be greater than can your hairstylist meet you at the needed time. Your mission will change to where your passions, the things you care about most, if there are things that keep you up at night, it will be because you are passionate about the things that move the heart of God. It will change your heart to an urgency to join the mission of God. Well, it will no longer be about protecting your little part of the planet. You will care about bringing good news to the ends of the earth. Because Corinthians says we're not our own. We have been bought with a price. This life is not about us. But come on, so, so much of the time we act like it is, right? And we make decisions as though this is it and it's all about us. When you study this stuff, my prayer is that it changes the urgency of your heart. Anybody ever notice that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about signs of the end times. Read it sometime. Matthew 24, signs of the end times. That's where he talks about where the day and the hour is unknown. But then you should also read chapter 25 of Matthew because chapter 25 is stories about being ready for when that happens. Stories like the sheep and the goats where Jesus said, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Because when I, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you looked after me. And when I was prison, in prison, you came to visit me. That's in chapter 25. Anybody unclear on what we're supposed to be about? Anybody unclear that if in Matthew 24 he's saying, be watching, I'm coming. In Matthew 25, it seems to be crystal clear that our mission is to take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And we are to love the least of these. To feed the hungry, to protect the children, to love our wounded neighbors. The end, the end, it is coming. And this is not about you being scared. It's about being prepared. In just a second, we're going to sing a song together. I'm going to ask band would come on up while I set this up for you. We're going to sing a song in a minute that enables us to celebrate this Jesus who really is coming back for us. I want to give you one more or image. It, it is the image that the old Apostle John has given on that Isle of Patmos. He's there by himself, and he is caught up to see what's going to take place. The scene is a throne room. It's a throne room. And he sees the one who is seated on the throne... And in those early chapters, he sees that in his hand is a scroll. 
Now, you can search this out. The simplest way I know to describe that is it's kind of like seeing that scroll as like the title deed to earth. It's like, who's going to make this right? When we look around us and we see all that is wrong and all that is broken and all that needs to be restored, who is the one who is worthy to take the scroll? Who is the one who is worthy to make this right? And no one steps forward to take the scroll. And it says John wept because there was no one. And then it reads in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, he says, John, you can stop crying, man. Take a look. There is a lion. Man, when I read the story that we've read today, when I look at the last battle, when I think of Jesus, I think of him as a lion. I mean, he's roaring if there ever was a picture. This king, he, he is worthy. This is prophecy all the way back to, to the book of Genesis when, when Judah, when the blessing was given to him by, by Jacob, he was called the lion's cub. And it was this picture that the Messiah was going to come through the line of Judah. Sure enough, here comes Jesus. And Jesus is the king who is coming to make all things right. But then it says John turns to see this king. And when he turns to see the king, verse 6, he says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Now, only God could give us a picture like this. I mean, come on. Here's John, and he's weeping because there's nobody to make this right. There's nobody. And the word is, oh, there's a lion. There is a lion. He is a king that roars. And on that day when the armies from the north and the armies from the south and the armies from the east, when they all converge, he is going to roar. And by the word of his mouth, he will put an end to it all. But the only reason that you and I can celebrate such a moment is because that lion is also a lamb. If he weren't a lamb, then we've got no hope at the end. But because he was the lamb, the lamb of God, who, who, who gave his life for all, he conquered sin and death. Where? At the cross. The Bible says at the cross, he made a public spectacle of the enemy, triumphing over him there. And I'm telling you that on that last battlefield, what's happening is really, it is the mop-up scene for what was already finished at the cross. Jesus' sacrifice was ultimate victory at Calvary. And that's why we look forward to that day when our king returns. He is the lion and he is the lamb. Hallelujah. What a savior. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's sing.